section fifteen of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain hawthorne's zenobia and priscilla and miriam and hilda hester prynne in the scarlet letter is studied in the round with an effect of life which is wanting to heroines in the flat whatever their charm of colour and drawing may be and zenobia and priscilla especially zenobia are still more vitalised by the same method of handling in the blithedale romance that romance as i have elsewhere expressed is nearer a novel than any other fiction of the author at times we find ourselves confronted there in spite of the author with a very palpitant piece of naturalism this is not more the fact in the case of the brawny tobacco-chewing silas foster who instructs the town-bred communists at blithedale in farming than in the sumptuous personality of zenobia the woman with a mysterious past who glows upon us in tropical splendour from the first chapters of the romance and illumines it throughout with the rich ardour of her impassioned presence one never could a writer have had material more to his mind than hawthorne found in the conditions at brook farm which he transmuted for his purposes to the imaginary situation at blithedale with the restricted scene sparingly and fitfully contrasted at times with the town life which the visionary reformers the poets artists philanthropists and mystics had left behind them in boston the small group of characters the play of interests freed from the sordid alloy of the world the psychological and emotional possibilities of an ideal action strongly backgrounded by fact hardly less ideal these are the materials of a story so slight that one marvels at the treasure of motive and event which it is made to hold the pages are few in which hollingsworth the gloomy friend and potential reformer of criminals has his being with zenobia whose strong heart he breaks and priscilla the pale maiden on whose weakness his misery relies and miles coverdale the minor poet and self-conscious historian of a tragedy which he observes with a cynical curiosity rather than a human sympathy yet no other book in the whole range of anglo-saxon fiction says so much to certain important moods in the reader there is of course some such mechanical toy in the blithedale romance as is central in every romance but in this case the toy has a mainspring of reality a scientific authority and the story pulsates from it like a living organism zenobia and priscilla are half-sisters the one daughter of the father's past opulence and luxury the other child of his blighted and ruined present and in their temperaments they consistently express the qualities of his different fortunes they express them only too consistently and with too great constancy to their appointed functions they are lifelike but if they were alive they would be more convertible and in this difference exists the essential and eternal 
inferiority of the ideal to the real in fiction the one must keep to its parti pris the other may avail itself of every caprice and vacillation and mutability known to observation and experience and be only more faithful to nature its supreme and sole exemplar all this is not saying that hawthorne does not handle his mechanism like the consummate artist he was there are long times when he makes you or lets you forget it he never intrudes it and it is chiefly in the perfunctory appearances of the father upon the scene that one is aware of zenobia and priscilla being operated by it priscilla indeed is operated throughout but not by the activity of this principle of heredity so much as by the passions of those about her she is not so merely a spectator as coverdale but she is almost more negative and her elusive personality is ascertained with exquisite delicacy and a succession of shadowy approaches on the part of the author which enlist the tremulous sympathy of the reader rather than reward it after all there does not seem to be very much of priscilla objectively she is a pale sickly little seamstress whom hollingsworth brings to the nascent community at blithedale by her father's wish and in unconscious fulfilment of old fauntleroy's hope that she may there somehow commend herself to the favour of her half-sister zenobia subjectively she is a capacity for clinging to any strength about her and attaching it to herself through compassion with the rude force of a prepotent philanthropist like hollingsworth this compassion becomes passion in compliance with the ironical pleasure of nature while the proud and beautiful zenobia is offering him her love in vain zenobia is the great personality in the book and she is substantiated with the conscience of a realist to the material as well as the spiritual vision she was dressed when coverdale first met her on his arrival at blithedale as simply as possible in an american print i think the dry goods people call it so but with a silken kerchief between which and her gown there was one glimpse of a white shoulder it struck me as a great piece of good fortune that there should be just that glimpse her hair which was dark glossy and of singular abundance was put up rather soberly and primly without curls or other ornament except a single flower it was an exotic of rare beauty and as fresh as if the hot-house gardener had just clipped it from the stem that flower has struck deep root into my memory i can both see it and smell it at this moment so brilliant so rare so costly as it must have been and yet enduring only for a day it was more indicative of the pride and pomp which had a luxuriant growth in zenobia's character than if a great diamond had sparkled among her hair her hand though very soft was larger than most women would like to have or than they could afford to have though not a whit too large in proportion with the spacious plan of zenobia's entire development it did one good to see a fine intellect as hers really was although its natural tendency lay in another direction than toward literature so fitly cased 
she was indeed an admirable figure of a woman just on the hither verge of her richest maturity with a combination of features which it is safe to call remarkably beautiful even if some fastidious persons might pronounce them a little deficient in softness and delicacy as we see her here zenobia is always present to the fancy in a warm reality not affected even by that mechanical device of the exotic in her hair which the author uses to identify her to our consciousness and insists upon so constantly but even of this the great defect in her characterization i write my censure with a tremor of remorse for it was precisely this exotic which once seemed to me the most exquisite the most precious expression of her personality now i know that it was merely a survival of an earlier aesthetical faith than that from which hawthorne wrote the blithedale romance though doubtless he still believed himself fully living in it two only the art of hawthorne could impart a perfect sense of the situation of his story and as i cannot transfer the whole book to my page i must trust the reader's remembrance of this art for its effect here priscilla grows into health and happiness without growing out of character in the arcadian air of the blithedale community and zenobia is more and more compassed about by the tragical shadows which the effulgence of her own passion casts till her despair ends with the defeat of her last vanity in the ugliness of her self-sought death the history is always without the concealment of the fact that from first to last her fineness was intellectual and that emotionally spiritually she was of a coarse fibre with even a strain of vulgarity a certain kind of new england woman to specialize a little more than to say american woman has never been so clearly seen or boldly shown as in zenobia and in her phase of tragedy she stands as impressively for the nineteenth century as hester prynne for the seventeenth in hers it is with pity almost to heartbreak that one witnesses her sacrifice of her belief in the cause of women to hollingsworth's greedy and relentless philanthropy and her meek abeyance before his savage proclamation of man's superiority his brute avowal of contempt for women except as the helpers and comforters of men when her sacrifice proves vain and the love which she cannot help betraying to him is without response we come in the twilight of the drama to that great moment where coverdale meets hollingsworth and zenobia and priscilla together for the last time in an eddy of the masquerade which has flowed away from them at blithedale and left them beside the rock in the forest called elliot's pulpit both coverdale and zenobia have returned from a brief absence in town where he has seen her with priscilla fulfilling a mysterious part of her destiny which relates her to the malign westervelt hollingsworth was in his ordinary working dress priscilla wore a pretty and simple gown with a kerchief about her neck and a calash which she had flung back from her head leaving it suspended by the strings but zenobia whose part among the maskers as may be supposed was no inferior one appeared in a costume of fanciful magnificence with her jewelled flower as the central ornament 
of what resembled a leafy crown or coronet her attitude was free and noble yet if a queen's it was not that of a queen triumphant hollingsworth zenobia i have just returned to blithedale said i and had no thought of finding you here we shall meet again at the house i will retire this place is free to you answered hollingsworth as free as to ourselves added zenobia this long while past you have been following up your game groping for human emotions in the dark corners of the heart had you been here a little sooner you might have seen them dragged into daylight i could even wish to have my trial over again with you standing by to see fair play do you know mr coverdale i have been on trial for my life you forced this on me replied hollingsworth looking her sternly in the face did i call you hither from among the masqueraders yonder do i assume to be your judge the more i looked at them and the more i heard the stronger grew my impression that a crisis had just come and gone in zenobia's whole person beholding her more closely i saw a riotous agitation the almost delirious disquietude of a great struggle at the close of which the vanquished one felt her strength and courage still mighty within her and longed to renew the contest ah do we part so exclaimed she seeing hollingsworth about to retire and why not said he with almost rude abruptness what is there further to be said between us well perhaps nothing answered zenobia looking him in the face and smiling you have put many queries to me at this which you designed to be our last interview and being driven as i must acknowledge into a corner i have responded with reasonable frankness but now with your free consent i desire the privilege of asking a few questions in my turn i have no concealment said hollingsworth we shall see answered zenobia i would first inquire whether you have supposed me to be wealthy on that point observed hollingsworth i have had the opinion which the world holds and i held it likewise said zenobia had i not heaven is my witness the knowledge should have been as free to you as me i fancied myself affluent you are aware too of the disposition which i purposed making of the larger portion of my imaginary opulence nay were it all i had not hesitated let me ask you further did i ever propose or intimate any terms of compact on which depended this as the world would consider it so important sacrifice you certainly spoke of none said hollingsworth nor meant any she responded i was willing to realize your dream though it should prove the ruin of my fortune and now one other question do you love this girl oh zenobia exclaimed priscilla shrinking back as if longing for the rock to topple over and hide her do you love her repeated zenobia had you asked me that question a short time since replied hollingsworth after a pause during which it seemed to me even the birch-trees held their whispering breath i should have told you no and what is your answer now persisted zenobia i do love her said hollingsworth uttering the words with a deep inward breath instead of speaking them outright as well declare it thus as in any other way i do love her 
now god be judge between us cried zenobia breaking into sudden passion which of us two has most mortally offended him at least i am a woman with every fault it may be that a woman ever had weak vain unprincipled like most of my sex for our virtues when we have any are merely impulsive and intuitive passionate too and pursuing my foolish and unattainable ends by indirect and cunning though absurdly chosen means as an hereditary bond-slave must false moreover to the whole circle of good in my reckless truth to the little good i saw before me but still a woman but how is it with you are you a man no but a monster a cold heartless self-beginning and self-ending piece of mechanism nothing else nothing but self 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 the fiend i doubt not has made his choicest mirth of you these seven years past and especially in the mad summer which we have spent together you have embodied yourself in a project the utmost that can be said in your behalf and because i would not be wholly despicable in my own eyes but would fain excuse my wasted feelings nor own it wholly a delusion therefore i say it is that a great and rich heart has been ruined in your breast leave me now you have done with me and i with you farewell priscilla said hollingsworth come she rose up stood shivering like the birch leaves that trembled over her head and then slowly tottered rather than walked toward zenobia arriving at her feet she sank down there ah priscilla you kneel to a dethroned princess you the victorious one but he is waiting for you say what you wish and leave me we are sisters gasped priscilla it meant the offering of herself and all she had to be at zenobia's disposal but the latter would not take it thus true we are sisters she replied and moved by the sweet word she stooped down and kissed priscilla but not lovingly for a sense of fatal harm received through her seemed to be lurking in zenobia's heart poor child methinks you have but a melancholy lot before you sitting all alone in that wide cheerless heart wherefore aught you know and as i alas believe the fire which you have kindled may soon go out what will you do priscilla when you find no spark among the ashes die she answered that was well said responded zenobia with an approving smile there is all a woman in your little compass my poor sister meanwhile go with him and live she waved her away with a queenly gesture and turned her own face to the rock i watched priscilla hollingsworth drew her arm within his and soon disappeared with her among the trees i cannot imagine how zenobia knew when they were out of sight she never glanced again toward them but retaining a proud attitude so long as they might have thrown back a retiring look they were no sooner departed utterly departed than she began slowly to sink down it was as if a great invisible irresistible weight were pressing her to the earth settling upon her knees she leaned her forehead against the rock and sobbed convulsively dry sobs they seemed to be such as have nothing to do with tears three 
in miriam and hilda of the marble fawn there are again two heroines in some such proportion as zenobia and priscilla are the heroines of the blithedale romance but miriam though of much the same moral frame and material complexion as zenobia is not so great and living a figure while hilda perhaps is rather more vitalized than priscilla i cannot think her of a very ample importance she represents the implacable morality of ignorant purity and when she has seen the hapless donatello do the murder to which miriam's glance has bidden him it is essentially impossible for her to have pity on miriam's despair relentlessly and unerringly hilda fixes the blame on her she casts miriam off but the knowledge of miriam's guilt obsesses her and so blackens and burdens her white soul that she cannot get back to the peace by which she lived until utter puritan as she is she has imparted the secret to the confessional all this is most truly and delicately felt most beautifully shown though again the typific white doves of hilda's tower affect my elderly sense with something of the mechanical superfluity and inadequacy of zenobia's sumptuous exotic as an expression of character miriam who is not so novel a conception has no such adventitious aid in realizing herself to us and in that degree she is truer physically she is of like make with hester prynne as well as zenobia and of a type which represented passion in hawthorne's imagination though as to blonde women it is by no means clear that nature made them lighter motions than the dark complexions whom he prefers as the exponents of deep and tragic feeling in any case however miriam is of a tropical beauty whose splendour is veiled like zenobia's by the shadows of a past in which she has been sinned against to the lurid trouble if not the contamination of her soul perhaps she has even shared in the sinning but that question is left in the pale limbo where the beginnings and the endings of the story are obscured what we know is that she is on the scene with the demon and the destined victim of her past the mysterious model who persecutes and menaces her and with that glad earth nature donatello who grows into spiritual consciousness through the crime he commits in her behalf shall it be owned that once more miriam recalls zenobia in that spice of vulgarity which hawthorne must have meant us to taste in her character there is something almost coarse in her light way of repulsing the young italian's love but this is all atoned for by her devotion to him when their joint crime has united them in one black destiny the deed is his but the guilt is hers as they both instantly recognized and it is their fatal necessity that they must expiate it so far as it may be expiated by a common suffering it is in a manner impossible not to choose the instant of the homicide as the supreme scene of the story and as that in which miriam leaves the shadow of her suffering to enter the shadow of her sinning and it is evident that hawthorne has lavished upon it the richest treasures of his art it is done so deftly indeed that it would be hard to tell in other words how casually almost unconsciously miriam and donatello are left alone looking over the brink of the tarpeian rock while the companions of their long ramble through the roman moonlight have wandered as involuntarily away 
it would be a fatal fall still she said to herself looking over the parapet and shuddering as her eye measured the depth donatello of whose presence she was possibly not aware now pressed closer to her side and he too like miriam bent over the low parapet and trembled violently what are you thinking of donatello asked miriam who are they said he looking earnestly in her face who have been flung over here in days gone by men that cumbered the world she replied men whose lives were the bane of their fellow-creatures men who poisoned the air which is the common breath of all for their own selfish purposes was it well done asked the young man it was well done answered miriam innocent persons were saved by the destruction of a guilty one who deserved his doom looking round she perceived that all her company of merry friends had retired and hilda too in whose soft and quiet presence she had always an indescribable feeling of security all gone and only herself and donatella left hanging over the brow of the ominous precipice not so however not entirely alone in the basement wall of the palace shaded from the moon there was a deep empty niche that had probably once contained a statue not empty either for a figure now came forth from it and approached miriam she must have had cause to dread some unspeakable evil from this strange persecutor and to note that this was the very crisis of her calamity miriam seemed dreamily to remember falling on her knees but in her whole recollection of that wild moment she beheld herself as in a dim show and could not well distinguish what was done and suffered no not even whether she were really an actor and sufferer in the scene hilda meanwhile had separated herself from the sculptor and turned back to rejoin her friend at a distance she still heard the mirth of her late companions who were going down the cityward descent of the capitoline hill the door of the little courtyard had swung upon its hinges and partly closed itself hilda whose native gentleness pervaded all her movements was quietly opening it when she was startled midway by the noise of a struggle within beginning and ending all in one breathless instant along with it or closely succeeding it was a loud fearful cry which quivered upward through the air and sank quivering downward to the earth then a silence the door of the courtyard swung slowly and closed itself of its own accord miriam and donatella were now alone there she clasped her hands and looked wildly at the young man whose form seemed to have dilated and whose eyes blazed with the fierce energy that had suddenly inspired him it had kindled him into a man it had developed within him an intelligence which was no native characteristic of the donatella whom we have heretofore known but that simple and joyous creature was gone for ever what have you done said miriam in a horror-stricken whisper the glow of rage was still lurid on donatello's face and now flashed out again from his eyes i did what ought to be done to a traitor he replied i did what your eyes bade me do when i asked them with mine as i held the wretch over the precipice these last words struck miriam like a bullet could it be so had her eyes provoked or assented to this deed she had not known it but alas looking back into the frenzy and turmoil of the scene just acted she could not deny she was not sure whether it might be so or no that a wild joy had flamed up in her heart when she beheld her persecutor in his mortal peril it had blazed up more madly when donatello flung his victim off the cliff and more and more while his shriek went quivering downward with the dead thump upon the stones 
below had come an unutterable horror and my eyes bade you do it repeated she they both leaned over the parapet and gazed downward as earnestly as if some inestimable treasure had fallen over and were yet recoverable on the pavement below was a dark mass lying in a heap with little or nothing human in its appearance except that the hands were stretched out as if they might have clutched for a moment at the small square stones but there was no motion in them now no stir not a finger moved you have killed him donatello he is quite dead said she she turned to him the guilty blood-stained lonely woman she turned to her fellow-criminal the youth so lately innocent whom she had drawn into her doom she pressed him close close to her bosom with a clinging embrace that brought their two hearts together till the horror and agony of each was combined in one emotion and that a kind of rapture yes donatello you speak the truth said she my heart consented to what you did we too slew yonder wretch the deed knots us together for time and eternity like the coil of a serpent they threw one other glance at the heap of death below to assure themselves that it was there so like a dream was the whole thing then they turned from that fatal precipice and came out of the courtyard arm in arm heart in heart four now that i have obeyed a sort of imperious necessity in selecting the passage given as supremely illustrative i have my misgiving whether i had not better chosen that scene in the medici gardens where shortly after the murder miriam and donatello are together their terrible exaltation is past that freedom of a broken law which was briefly theirs has already lapsed into the bondage of remorse and she realizes that all the love of her blood-stained soul avails nothing to purge his listless spirit of its new-found sense of guilt this is a great scene and that again is a great scene where miriam goes to hilda in her dove-haunted tower and the girl's cruel truth accuses and convicts the unhappy woman and casts her off and disowns her did hawthorne here i wonder mean to let us see something ugly in the angelic hilda's effort for self-protection and her ruthless self-pity for her own involuntary privity to miriam's guilt that would be like his subtlety and it is certain that the effect is to enlist the sympathy of the witness for miriam and to render her for the moment less abhorrent than hilda in fact if i must empty the sack altogether i cannot conceal that at the bottom of it is a dislike for that cold spirit of hilda and a sense of something selfish in her relation to the whole affair perhaps it is not a real relation the whole action loses vitality after the parting of hilda and miriam and though it is bravely and beautifully managed to the end it is managed and does not manage itself the rest of the story is as intentional as operated as the second part of faust and in this the marble fawn must rank below the scarlet letter and the blithedale romance which are of a vitality that carries them strongly to the close for the same reason miriam cannot be placed with hester prynne and zenobia who have no galvanic palingenesis but live warmly and richly in the memory while the miriam of the second volume has to be recalled with a constant effort it may be said in her defence that the author put upon her a burden to which she was not equal he was not equal to it himself as goethe also was not and indeed no man is the problem of evil will not be solved if we reduce the question which is hawthorne's greatest heroine to a choice between hester prynne and zenobia i must give my voice for zenobia 
few heroines survive so far beyond their story and remain in a sort so fully a part of experience as she i know of no other in anglo-saxon fiction and only three or four outside of it she is not a very great or noble character she has moments of being rather hard and jealous with priscilla and rather nasty to coverdale who doubtless deserves it but she is largely planned and generously built she has as i have owned a touch of vulgarity and we are allowed to suspect her of a lawless and sufficiently foolish fancy she is a half-caste literary talent and some of her ideals are apparently tawdry but she is a very woman soul what she does and suffers is by the law of her womanhood which in her death as in her life asserts itself in defeat so cruel as to leave the reader with a lasting pang for her End of section 15